Let's say a prayer before we look at scripture this morning. Jesus, we thank you for always being with us whenever we're gathered together. We're grateful for your presence, for your grace in our lives, for your mercy, for your forgiveness, for the challenges you bring to us. We're grateful that you lead us in the 21st century and show us the way we should go and how to live our life in a way that honors you and joins in the work that you want done in the world. We thank you for your promise of eternal life that no matter where we go and what happens to us, we will always be with you. We pray that you just open our hearts and our minds as we continue to talk about everyday ways, God, to um, discuss who you are and why that matters with other people. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We're in a series called Everyday Ways to Talk About God. And if you haven't been with us so far, we're just trying to find ways to talk about the foundations of Christian faith in ways that would make sense to anybody. So not necessarily people who have a Christian background or have been in church in their life, but folks you might know from work or your neighborhood or your family who, who don't have any of that background. And so we've heard sermons so far about uh, everyday ways to talk about the gospel, about Jesus, about God's love, we heard last week from, from Jenny. And today we're gonna talk about everyday ways to talk about sin. Weren't you hoping to hear a sermon on sin today when you got up? Look at that, enthusiasm, all right. Everyday ways to talk about sin. And you might, be, you might right away start thinking, well, I don't know that I hear a lot about sin in my everyday uh, regular life. But what I've tried to do today is structure the whole sermon in a way that hopefully anybody could engage with even if they didn't have a Christian background. So I want you just to imagine as we start that you're having a good conversation, like a deep conversation over coffee or tea or a meal with somebody that you've got a friendship with and you're discussing what you think about what's true about the world and about the nature of sin and, and who God is. So just kind of have that in your imagination as we go forward. So turns out sin is a word that's actually used quite a bit in non-Christian circles. I've actually been listening to this book called The Seven Deadly Sins of Building a Contractor Business. You may know that my dad is the president of a fourth generation heating and air conditioning company, and so this is an interest area of mine. The seven deadly sins of building a contractor business. And he uses the word sin at the beginning. He defines it, and he says in archery, the word sin simply means to miss the mark. And so if you imagine a, a bullseye and the, 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 dead, the center point of the bullseye being where you're trying to hit, that when you're, if you're, any people who are experienced in archery in the room? Archers, is that what you're called? I'd love to talk to you afterwards. So if you miss the bullseye up in archery, it's called sinning up. If you miss the bullseye down, it's called sinning down, etc. And so this is a term that he uses to kind of anchor this book that he's written about leading a small business. The center of the bullseye is the standard or the goal. And there's a way of doing things that help you hit that goal. And when you're not hitting the goal, when you're not hitting the mark in archery, that's called sinning. Interesting, right? So in this book, he defines sin as anything that you're doing as a small business owner, as a contractor, that's preventing you from running a good business. One that doesn't require you to work 24 hours a day, one that empowers your employees, one that makes money, one that does good quality work. And he spends the whole work, the whole book, basically telling you how to not sin as a small business owner defined as hitting this, this mark of running a good, a good business. Now, this is a good example of how the word sin is used, both in Christian circles 
And in non-Christian circles, sin just means missing the mark. There's something you're aimed, aimed at, you're, you're trying to get, you're trying to move towards, and you're off. You're off in some, maybe a small way, maybe a large way. If you Google this, you come up with all kinds of books and resources that talk about the seven deadly sins of marketing or the seven deadly sins of parenting or the seven, seven deadly sins of relationships, personal finance, politics, the list goes on and on. We use the word sin actually quite commonly to simply mean that we're missing the mark, that we're not doing the things that we wanna do to get where we wanna go. And that's common to everyone, right? Christian or non-Christian, everybody would admit, at times I'm not hitting the mark. I'm not going where I wanna go in my life. Yes, okay, some agreement? All right, so in the Bible, let's talk about sin in Christian terms for a second. In the Bible, sin has an origin story. In, in the, in the um, superhero universe, you have to have an origin story to understand where everybody came from. Well, sin has an origin story in the Bible. It's in Genesis chapter three. In Genesis chapter three, we, we get this picture of how sin first entered the world. God creates the world. God creates the world and he says it is good. God creates people to live in the world. He gives people authority in the world. And then a temptation comes in, in chapter three. And the temptation specifically from, uh, from the presence of evil in the Garden of Eden is to ignore the instructions and authority of God. To ignore the boundaries that God has given human beings. And the whisper from the serpent in the story is to say the reason that God doesn't want you to eat from this one particular tree is because then you will be like God. And this is really the core of understanding sin in scripture. That we would in some way have a desire to be on par with God. Sometimes that's called idolatry. That we would have a desire to be a peer with God or maybe even more important than God. Sin, uh, the Bible uses language to describe sin like rejecting God's authority in our lives, breaking God's law. Sin in Christian terms also has relational implications. So sin means that we are rejecting God's love for us and desire for relationship with us, both as individuals and as a group. And this is the Christian way to talk about missing the mark. So some of you may be familiar with a passage in Romans chapter three, uh, I've given you the, the message translation this morning. Here's how the Bible talks about this missing the mark. It says, since we've compiled this long and sorry record as sinners, both us and them, meaning people who don't know Jesus, and proved that we're utterly incapable of living the glorious lives that God wills for us, God did it for us. God lived it for us, God saved us. We'll come back to that part later. This text is trying to say to us that everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone has missed the mark, so to speak, in the kind of life that God has in mind for us, that God created for us. And we've been missing the mark ever since Genesis 3. Sin has a very particular meaning for Christians where we are saying we know that we are incapable even of hitting the mark that God has set in front of us. And so we need God's help. We'll come back to that too. I wanna to talk for a moment 
about how I think we are in a particular Genesis 3 moment in the 21st century, okay? You see on the slide behind me that there are multiple bullseyes. This is the conversation that I think we're now having, if we're gonna use this terminology, right? It's not just that we're, we're having a discussion with people that aren't Christians or are Christians about whether we're hitting the mark or not. We don't even know which bullseye we're aiming for. And everyone seems to be in the space where they feel like they can even create their own bullseye and decide what their life will really be about. I call it a Genesis 3 moment right now because I think it's tempting to think something like this. I don't really need God to define what is true and what's real because I can do that myself. Let me say that again. We're, in, we're facing a temptation in the 21st century. I don't really need God to define what's true or what's real because I'm able to do that myself. Nobody says it like that, but that's exactly what's happening. It's tempting to think that you can decide what's best for your life to create your own truth and allow that to be the guide by which you measure your success in your life. And so we have individuals who are completely crafting their own version of the good life, deciding what makes it good and what doesn't, and then using their energy and their resources to pursue that. That's part of what's happening in the 21st century. In 1 John chapter 1, uh, verse 5, John writes this. This is the message we have heard from, from him, Jesus, and declare to you. God is light. In him, there's no darkness at all. And if we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Just leave that scripture up there for a minute. John uses the metaphor of light and darkness because that was everyday language for the first century. People would have understood what he meant by light and, and darkness. But he's creating this scenario where he says, either you line yourself up with the truth as God is describing it, or you don't. And that means you're walking in darkness. And if you claim that you're not walking in darkness, you're lying and calling God a liar. It's pretty stark language, right? John says that we are rejecting truth is like walking in the darkness and there's no darkness in God. So let me just take a moment and kind of connect this to where I think we are and a, a pastoral concern I have about where we are in the 21st century. When I mean we, I mean everybody, not just Mill City Church. I wanna say that there's a big difference between saying uh, my truth, which is a common phrase that people use now, and my perspective or my experience. I would put my perspective and my experience in a category, and I would put my truth in a separate category. And I want to unpack this a little bit. So Adam and Eve thought that they could become like God and define the world the way that, the way that they wanted to live in it. But what they found out was that they were wrong about that. 
The promise from the serpent didn't come true. They didn't get to be like God. They just found out that the reality that God was trying to create for them, they could no longer access because they had rejected God's authority in their life. They had rejected God's relationship in their life. They were literally hiding from God in the garden. Their rejection of God's relationship and authority in their life brought about incredible pain and incredible suffering in their own lives and in the lives of others. Now, we live in a world right now where we're maybe more aware than we ever have been of our need to pay attention to the differences in the lives of other people. We have got to pay attention to the differences of perspective and experience and how people come at ideas and, and, and life in different ways. It's essential that we honor the differences of people who aren't like us. It's essential that we listen to the experiences of other people, especially those voices who have been ignored or silenced. Essential, we have to do that. But honoring the perspectives and experiences of other people doesn't mean that human beings get to define what's true. There, that's the role that only God gets to play, according to Christian thinking. We can share our understanding of God's truth. We can share our experience of God's truth. We can share our perspective on God's truth. But we don't get to define the truth. That's not something that God allows for us in our role. We don't get to become like God in that way. Listening to someone else's experience and perspective takes great humility, doesn't it? Because when you really listen to someone else, you learn that you have some biases and ways of thinking that maybe haven't been challenged because you haven't had them challenged by anyone. And that sort of humility is embodied by Jesus. But for Christians, there's only one standard for what's true. And that's determined by God and defined in the person of Jesus. There, I don't think there's any space for my truth in Christian thought. And I'm a little worried the way that it's being used in conversation right now. We spend our lives continually growing in our understanding of God's truth, that hopefully we're deepening and maturing our understanding of what's true and what's not true, and trying to live our lives with the help of the Holy Spirit in line with what God teaches us is true or not true. But it's never in our purview to define reality and decide what's true. That has always gotten us into trouble. So on a personal note, I feel really uncomfortable that other people are comfortable thinking that they have what is necessary to define their own reality for themselves. I'm not trying to pick on any conversation right now, so if you're trying to read into what I'm saying, I'm really not. I'm saying very generally, I don't know why anybody who's 20 years old or 30 years old or 50 years old or 70 years old would feel like they have enough grasp on all of human knowledge to become the authority from which truth is defined. That is extreme arrogance, extreme arrogance. I feel very nervous about people who seem comfortable rejecting standards of truth from Christian faith or other faith traditions or even reason, people just discarding all of those things and deciding my perspective can define what's true for me. That is extremely dangerous thinking. That is a Genesis 3 moment 
for the 21st century. It sounds an awful lot like the temptation from the serpent. Don't worry about the standards of truth that have been set before you for thousands of years before you were born. You can define it yourselves. That makes me very nervous as a pastor, as a Christian, as a dad. It makes me very nervous. And so I want to say, well, what, what can we understand about God's truth? If sin is missing the mark, then how do we define the mark? What is the thing that we are aiming from, or for from a Christian perspective? How would we describe that way of life? And I'm going to do this really briefly. I want to just say generally that God's truth is most easily understood in Jesus Christ. God becomes a human being for a reason, to help us see what does truth look like in human form. Jesus refers to himself as the way, the way of life that he is calling us into. Jesus taught that the most important uh, commandments from God are, are two, right? To love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, if you do these things, if you love the God of the Bible with your whole being and you treat your neighbor the way that you want to be treated, you will live. That's the language that Jesus uses. Loving God means accepting God's role, relationship, and authority in your life. Loving God means accepting God's role, God's relationship, and God's authority in your life. God gets to define the standard for what a good life is like. That's God's role. According to Christian faith now, that's what I'm talking about. God defines the best way to live life, and you are invited to follow that way with Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. But you don't get to decide what the way is. God does. Following God's way revealed in Jesus begins with admitting that you can never, leap, never perfectly follow God's way. This is one of the greatest things about Christian faith. Following Jesus begins like an Alcoholic Anonymous meeting. I'm a sinner. I could never do it. I know I'm going to miss the mark. Without the grace found in Jesus Christ, I'm never going to have any sort of progress or success in my life towards the goal that God has set before me. And everyone in the meeting gets to say the same thing. And everyone that comes to worship gets to say the same thing when we come for communion, right? I don't deserve this more than anybody else does. But because of God's grace and God's mercy in my life, by the power of the Holy Spirit, God calls me to continually mature and move towards the goal that God has set out before me. So sin is missing this mark in Christian thought. Sin means that we're trying to love God and accept God's role, relationship, and authority in our life, and we don't always hit it. And, and somehow that sin has to be dealt with. Now, this sin, according to the Christian story, has all kinds of effects. When you look around your everyday life, you see the impact of sin. Our rejection of God's way has called, caused so much pain and so much suffering and so much brokenness in the world. And whether you're a Christian or not, it's not hard to point out spaces where things are not going the way that, that we think they ought to go and that we might say God intends them to go. This brokenness is both personal and it's global when you think about sin. Global brokenness 
is unfortunately easy to point out. The list is super long. There are food shortages, there are lacks, lack of clean water, there's poor health, there's struggle with disease, there's human trafficking, there's environmental crises, there are people experiencing oppression and displacement from their homes, and the list goes on and on and on of the brokenness in the world, right? And at least some of that we can attribute to the fact that we have rejected God's way, which very simply is defined as if we're loving God with our whole heart and we're loving our neighbor as ourselves, well, that solves some of those problems, doesn't it? If we're allowing the Holy Spirit to truly bring that kind of character out of all of our lives as a community, don't some of those global issues get resolved when people start to live the way that God invites them to live? There's personal brokenness involved in sin, according to Christian thought. We experience the effects of sin personally. When we reject God's authority and relationship in our lives, we're separated from God in ways that God never intended us to be separated. Our pride, our greed, our lust create patterns in our lives that are destructive for us and for the people around us. The primary impact of sin in our lives personally is relational disconnection from God. Now, I don't know if you've ever had these seasons of your life, or maybe you're in one right now. Even though I've been a Christian pretty much as far back as I can remember, I can point to seasons of my life where I know I have sort of intentionally rejected God's authority and role and relationship in my life. I got tired of listening to where God wanted me to go and what God wanted me to do. I looked around and said, it seemed like some other people are having a lot of success in their life by just doing whatever they feel the best thing is to do. Why should I stay focused on some of these things that God says important when I could just be more self-interested and focus on some other things that I want to do? And when I've had those seasons of my life, my life didn't completely crumble. I didn't go bankrupt. I didn't lose every relationship I ever have. I didn't have a Job-like experience when I rejected God's authority in my life for seasons. But I had a deep crisis of relational disconnection from God and a struggle to create any kind of meaning out of my life in those seasons. And I can still think back on those moments and say, if you reject God's authority in your life, if you, if you say to Jesus, no thanks, I don't really want to follow where you're leading, then you are now having to figure out some other way to make sense of your life, to make meaning out of your life. And there are a lot of options in the 21st century. There are other religious views that might help you do that. There are uh, ways to create a lifestyle out of just pursuing happiness in the 21st century. But if you start to evaluate and look at those things and compare them to your experience of being loved by Jesus and the grace and forgiveness that God offers, in my view, none of those things make as much sense of the good life as Christian faith does. And so I struggled through those periods of time until I came to my senses and went back to say, no, I don't wanna be my own boss. I need you to be my leader and my guide and my savior. And I need to remember my role and I need to follow where you go. That is what actually brings me the most joy and the most happiness and, and leads me into the kingdom of God. And what do we do when we start to recognize our own sin? In 1 John, a little bit further down in the same chapter in verse eight, John writes, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, 
He's faithful and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. The solution from the Christian perspective to sin starts with confession. People admitting to themselves and other people, I haven't hit the mark. I can't hit the mark on my own. If we deceive ourselves and think that doesn't matter, we are calling God a liar. We are rejecting God's definition of reality and life. If we claim we have not sinned, we make God out to be a liar and God's word is not in us. But if we confess our sins, here's what it says in chapter two, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin, but if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only our sins, but the sins of the entire world. Do you see how the Bible is making a claim over all of creation? Not just Christians. Jesus is out to save everybody. Not by making us all people who are amazing at hitting the mark, but by helping us see that we can't do it. We need a savior. We need a leader. We can't define reality for ourselves. Jesus is the one who offers us this amazing forgiveness because of his life and death and resurrection and invites us to join his family and do the things that God wants us to do in the world. That's the Christian response to sin. By confessing our sins, we accept God's authority in our lives. We accept God's relationship in our lives. We admit our faults and we ask for God's forgiveness, which God freely gives us because of what Jesus has done. And by taking communion, which we're gonna do in a minute, we admit our brokenness and we receive God's forgiveness that is offered to us in Jesus Christ. I'll invite the communion servers to come forward and the band to come up. I wanna invite you to uh, engage in a confession with me this morning. That as Christians, we regularly do this. This isn't a one-time thing that you did at one point in your life, but we regularly need to come back to relationship with God and say, I confess my sins. So there'll be a confession on the screen. I'm gonna give you just a minute to read it, read through it silently. And then if you're comfortable, you can join with the rest of us in saying it out loud together before we take communion. if you'd like to participate, repeat along with me. Merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us 
and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Jesus, we offer this confession to you because you say it will bring us life. And so the heaviness, God, of our sins, if we're keenly aware this morning that we have not been hitting the mark, that we have not been listening to you, I pray over us your grace and your mercy and your forgiveness, your invitation to have the slate wiped clean, to be reminded that you have paid every debt that we owe. God, that you have set us free from the penalties of sin and death through our faith in Jesus Christ, that we might be free to join you in your mission day in and day out until your kingdom comes and Jesus returns. We are so grateful for what you have done for us. We do not take it for granted. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. At Mill City Church, the way we practice communion is when you're ready, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you know that Jesus is your Lord and Savior, you can come forward and take a piece of gluten-free bread and dip it in the juice. These represent Jesus' body given for us and Jesus' blood shed for us. And today, as you're receiving that, I encourage you to just say, I confess. I confess my sin. Please bring healing into my life and help me to find the path that you want for me. There'll be people along the walls who would love to pray for you. They will pray very generally for you. They will pray very specifically for you. However you need, feel free to stop and pray with some of those people as you go by. When you're ready to take communion, you're welcome to come forward during this next song.